Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. The Department of Justice has tonight, this evening, filed a brief arguing that it cannot wait until December to look at all 11,000 documents it seized from Donald Trump. The department is arguing the delay is impeding its central investigation, and we are going to get to that story shortly. But we begin tonight with the destructive fury of Hurricane Ian. The storm made its second landfall in the United States a little after 2 o'clock this afternoon near Georgetown, South Carolina, arriving as a Category 1 storm with maximum sustained winds of 85 miles per hour. Those winds and churning ocean waves were strong enough to destroy at least four fishing piers off the South Carolina coast, including this one near North Myrtle Beach. They also tossed an abandoned shrimp boat up on the sand. You can see right there that boat had reportedly been anchored 12 miles offshore. Here's a look at rescue crews evacuating four people who were trapped on the second floor of a motel near an amusement park in the coastal resort city of Myrtle Beach. Hundreds of thousands are without power in the Carolinas right now. Ian has now been downgraded to a post-tropical cyclone. But the National Hurricane Center is still warning of threats from dangerous storm surge, high winds, and flash flooding. On the back end of the storm in Florida, the winds and rain have moved on, but the destruction they caused is ongoing. In central Florida, communities like Orlando are still covered in flood water. While on Florida's southwest coast, where Ian first made its landfall two days ago, the full picture of the devastation is still emerging. You're looking right here at Sanibel, the barrier island completely cut off from the mainland by a partial collapse of its causeway. The Coast Guard released this video today of rescues they are conducting or were conducting yesterday by air, including this man who was found sitting in his boat stranded in mangroves near the island. Earlier today, NBC's Lester Holt met residents of another devastated community that has taken the brunt of Ian's wrath. We met people leaving Fort Myers Beach on foot. What little they have left is in those suitcases. It's many like a of war the, zone right now. Yep, the many whole, of the, the whole island. The devastation's unbelievable. Then we met Barry Lawrence. And I've never experienced it again. He was riding out the storm from a third floor condo on the beach when he says he started seeing friends' homes swallowed up by the waves. I went into the water and saved three people. and I lost one friend. I couldn't save her. She got washed away. The confirmed U.S. death toll from the storm is currently at least 21, all of those deaths in Florida. Part of the reason this hurricane has been so destructive compared to previous storms is climate change. But another reason is simply that there was more in the way of this storm than any that had come before it. More houses and more people. Lee County, which took a direct hit from Hurricane Ian, has been a boomtown. This is the housing density in and around Lee County in 1970. Back then, the county was home to just 100,000 people. As of the latest census, more than 760,000 people lived there. And there have been similar booms up and down the coast all across South Florida. What this means is that when hurricanes like Ian make landfall, the question isn't if they will hit a population center. The question is which one they will hit. 
But even still, where Hurricane Ian hit was particularly bad. Last year, Lee County, the epicenter of the damage brought by the storm, was the ninth fastest growing county in the United States. Joining us now from Fort Myers Beach, Florida, the shoreline of Lee County, is Perry Russom, a correspondent for CNBC's The News with Shep Smith. Perry, thanks again for joining us this evening. I know you have spent a few days now in some of the hardest hit areas of the state. Do we have a full picture at this point of how many people may still be missing or how many more uh, deaths we may see in the coming days? So I feel like two days out right now, Alex, we are looking at one puzzle piece of a 500 piece puzzle. There is so much to comprehend, so much to take in, so much is widespread. The thing you mentioned down here in Lee County, there are so many people, there are so many houses, and then with those people come boats. We are seeing boats in trees. There's a boat behind me at a gas station. I have no idea where the closest marina is. We were down on San Carlos Island today where there were these large vessels, probably 30, 40 foot boats that were just in the middle of the road, some of them crashing into houses. So you have this accordion effect of mobile homes and houses going into each other. And then you have boats going into each other, making the destruction that much worse. Yeah. So it sounds like the boats and the mobile homes have effectively became projectiles in the middle of this hurricane. Right. That's what we're hearing uh, from people down there. There was such concern with how quickly the water was rising, too. There was not much that people can do. Down on these roads on San, uh, San Carlos, where we were today, it is so difficult to navigate. These homes are so close together. There are so many people living down here. And with the power being off, there's such a miscommunication, no communication about what's going on. And we were speaking with a man down there today who had no idea what was happening on Sanibel Island. We were breaking the news to him. We said, hey, did you hear what happened there? He said, no. We said the Causeway Bridge is gone. He couldn't believe that. He thought they were still going over by boats. We said they can't go over by boats. They're going over by helicopter. He has never even fathomed that that was even possible down here. So you're talking about people, I mean, who really have been living in complete darkness in terms of the understanding the scope of the devastation. Is there a feeling that telecommunications are going to be back up in order at some point soon? Or I mean, how? Because that is effectively a lifeline in a moment like this, right? Right. So Governor DeSantis was saying that some of the cell carriers here are letting their different cell phone companies roam off of one another. Cell phone service has been getting better over the last 24 hours. It's getting better closer to the water, but it is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Down on the islands, the barrier islands, there is no cell service at all. And on top of that, no power. So even if people had the ability to power their phones, they wouldn't get anything anyway. So a lot of the messaging is being passed from person to person with this. When you talk about San Carlos Island, the the community, did you talk to people who didn't evacuate and and did they regret their choice not to evacuate now that they can sort of understand the scope of the ferocity of this hurricane and what it's done to the state? We met a man named Leonard today, 77 years old, probably five foot five, quiet guy, meek guy, lives in one of the trailer homes down there. He told us that he wanted to stay because he just thought the storm was going to pass over. No big deal. But he knew this was a very big deal when the water started to rise. He tried to evacuate. He opened up the door to his trailer and saw how deep the water was, how quickly it was moving. He realized he just could not swim. At that time, he saw something floating in the water past the trailer. It was a fiberglass staircase, probably from a boat, he tells us. So he grabbed onto this thing in the middle of this hurricane. He told us that he was on this 
on this little fiberglass staircase for three and a half hours with the hurricane on top of him, waiting for the water to recede until his feet could curl into the mud. This is what he told us. Leonard, what do you think about life after what you just went through? It's beautiful. But, to me, you need to think a little more ahead of time. Don't wait to see if it can happen or it wouldn't happen. When you hear something, don't even worry about it. Go on. So people are now facing this question who live down there. These people have no means. They can't get a hotel. They can't get somebody to watch their stuff. So the options they have, leave, leave their home, leave their belongings, go somewhere safe, or stay where they are and watch their stuff. They are concerned, very concerned about looting and losing whatever they have. Many of them are deciding to stay. But with that, they are leaving safety behind, leaving food behind, water behind. Many of them really have nothing they are turning to. I mean, there's the physical damage and then there's the psychological damage that is no doubt going to be a huge part of the recovery here. Perry Russell, correspondent with CNBC's The News with Shepard Smith. Thanks so much for all your reporting, Perry. We sincerely appreciate it. Now that Hurricane Ian has left Florida and we are starting to understand the extent of the damage left in its wake, one of the next big questions is what gets rebuilt and who pays for it? The catastrophic damage left by Hurricane Ian is projected to be in the tens of billions of dollars. Yesterday, President Biden declared nine of the county's affected disaster areas, which qualifies them for some federal aid. But not very much and not very quickly. The bulk of this recovery will rely on insurance. Just for the property that was insured, insurers are bracing for a hit of between 28 and $47 billion. But that's just for the insured property. And one of the devastating realities we're now realizing is that so much of where this storm hit was uninsured. In the counties whose residents were told to evacuate, just 18 percent of homes had coverage through the National Flood Insurance Program. Even in areas designated by FEMA as in the floodplains, less than half of the homes had flood insurance. And the floods from rain and storm surge went well past FEMA's projected floodplains to areas where less than 10 percent of homes are insured for floods. Those FEMA floodplain projections are supposed to warn people if they are in an area that has a 1% chance of flooding every year. They call them 100-year flood zones because for every 100 years, you should expect one flood. But as Florida Governor Ron DeSantis pointed out yesterday, this storm hit an area that would be more like a 500-year flood zone. And that's the issue. These 100-year storms, these 500-year storms, they are starting to happen all the time. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, tracks disasters like this, what they call billion-dollar disaster events, and, and things are not looking good. This chart is adjusted for inflation, and you can see, even with that, that all through the 80s and 90s, yeah, we did have some big disasters. But the overall cost for rebuilding stayed pretty steady. But now we have catastrophic climate events all the time. Last year, NOAA counted $20 billion weather and climate disasters in the U.S. Those altogether cost $152 billion. In the last five years, these disasters have cost the U.S. $788 billion. Now compare that with the amount we're spending on the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest climate bill in U.S. history. That totals $369 billion spread out over 10 years. One of those things 
is a lot bigger than the other. These 100-year or 500-year disasters have started to become a regular occurrence, and our insurance system is clearly failing to provide support to the people who need it. And even our biggest, best efforts to battle climate change are basically a drop in the bucket compared to the scope of these disasters. So how do we fix this? How do we help people right now and make a system that can last through this new climate crisis? Joining us now is Carolyn Kuski, Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund and author of Understanding Disaster Insurance, Tools for a More Resilient Future, which comes out very presciently next month. Um, Carolyn, thank you so much for being with us tonight. Thanks for having me tonight. Let me just ask, just to begin with, what kind of assistance should people expect from the federal government if they don't have insurance in a moment like this down in Florida? Yeah, it's an important question. There will be some assistance forthcoming. As you noted, President Biden has issued a disaster declaration, which unlocks some assistance from FEMA to meet some immediate needs. But unfortunately, those grants are fairly limited. They're capped, and most people can probably expect, you know, several thousand, five, seven thousand dollars, but not nearly enough to match the property destruction, the devastation that we've been witnessing. It's important for people to realize that those grants aren't going to make them financially whole after a disaster like this. Yeah. When you say five or seven thousand dollars and you juxtapose that figure against those images we just showed everyone, you know, houses just completely leveled. I mean, effectively, it's just destruction everywhere in some parts of these uh, counties. How can people better know the risk that they're taking on when they go to a place like Lee County? I mean, what kind of information is there for people as they build homes or rent or buy homes in a place that is effectively at the forefront of climate disaster? Unfortunately, we are not doing the best job in this country with communicating to people about flood risk ahead of time. So you noted those FEMA 100-year flood zones. When someone moves into uh, one of those flood zones and they take out a mortgage, their lender will talk to them about flood risk because they'll be required to purchase flood insurance. But for everyone else, they might not get any information at all. Some states have some basic disclosure when property is sold. But as you were noting, flood risk extends far beyond those FEMA zones. And part of it is because there's more extreme events. Part of it's because sometimes those maps are outdated and need to be refreshed. And part of it is that those maps typically do not include flooding from intense precipitation, which is getting worse in a lot of parts of the country with climate change and is also responsible for a lot of the flooding we're seeing in Florida. As Ian moved inland, it just dropped enormous amounts of rain, which can lead to this really costly flooding far actually from the coast or from a river. And I'll also note that we're not very good about talking about how it's all changing with climate change, as you were talking about. Yeah, well, it feels like the maps, the information that we have is outdated, right? We're living in a new climate reality and the tools we use to navigate that seem sorely anachronistic. I, I guess I wonder if you think that this moment and Hurricane Ian marks an inflection point in terms of how we think of American cities and American development. Because on one hand, Part of our nature as Americans is to rebuild and to move forward. And then at the same time, when you look at the growth of places like Lee County and you look at the reality of climate change, it feels like those two things can't coexist. And I wonder if you think there's going to be a hard conversation about whether we can rebuild and whether we should rebuild, given the economic costs and the literal physical danger that people may be putting themselves in. 
Absolutely. Those are really difficult conversations and yet absolutely essential to be having right now. We are in a period now of ever-increasing risk. This was not the first severe storm to hit our country, and it's not going to be the last. And it is very much time to take a step back and think carefully about how we can build safer, keep people out of harm's way, build more resiliently. So these are things like stronger building codes, um, maybe moving away from some of the highest risk areas and undertaking community-wide measures, whether that's investments in flood protection or nature-based solutions to help protect us. But we're going to have to start thinking differently about where we build and where we live if we want to not face this sort of ever-increasing cost and the human suffering that comes with it. Yeah, it's not just an economic question. It's a moral and ethical question. Let me just close by asking you, if, if someone wanted to take the federal aid and move somewhere else and say, I'm done with this area, I don't want to put myself in the bullseye of another climate disaster, could they do that? That's a tricky question. And often disasters, we might hope, could be an opportunity to think differently. And if people want to move somewhere safer or build better, but unfortunately, there's a lot of challenges in the system with doing that. Some of the federal assistance dollars are only meant to be used to build back in place in the same way. So there's some policy changes we need there. Sometimes there's simply not enough money to help someone you know, pay off a mortgage and fully relocate somewhere else. That can be costly. And sometimes the assistance we do have for these types of relocations just takes way too long to get to people. And faced with this kind of devastation, people can't wait around years wondering whether they'll have the financial help they need to move somewhere safer. There are so few good answers in all of this. And in the meantime, people's lives have been shattered. And that's sort of putting that, those pieces together as job number one. Carolyn Kuski, Associate Vice President for Economics and Policy at the Environmental Defense Fund. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks so much, Alex. We have much more to come tonight. Up next, new action from the Justice Department. They say they need access to all the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago because there are some very important clues in those papers. The DOJ is making its appeal amid signs of disarray amongst Trump's legal team. And later, I went down to Texas to talk to the man who may be the Democrats' last best hope to defeat the Texas right wing. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too. Because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Rapatha.com or call 1-844-RAPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Rapatha. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. We've just gotten a brand new filing from the Justice Department tonight, just within the last couple of hours, in the Mar-a-Lago document scandal. The DOJ is once again going to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, the same court that stepped in and allowed the department to access the 100 or so classified documents seized from Mar-a-Lago. The Justice Department is now asking for expedited access to the thousands of other government documents that Trump had squirreled away, some 11,000 of them. In tonight's filing, the DOJ says that because they are still unable to look at those thousands of other government documents, the DOJ's broader investigation is compromised. Here's what they say specifically about why the department needs access and pronto to those documents. Those records, quote, may shed light on, for example, how the materials bearing classification markings were transferred to Trump's residence, how they were stored, and who may have accessed them. And while we know that having a bunch of classified documents at your beach club may break certain laws, the Justice Department notes tonight that even the records not marked as classified may also constitute evidence of potential crimes, namely obstruction and concealment of government records. Now, the reason they have to go to the appeals court for this is, of course, because of Trump-appointed federal judge Eileen Cannon, who has repeatedly ruled in Trump's favor as he has sought to block the government from getting access to its own documents that it seized from Trump's Florida home. The way the DOJ got access to the approximately 100 classified documents from Mar-a-Lago was by getting the 11th Circuit to overrule Judge Cannon on that one point. But it wasn't clear until tonight that the Justice Department was going to continue fighting in earnest for the unclassified documents as well. But clearly they are here tonight asking the appeals court to expedite this whole thing so that it can be adjudicated in the next few weeks. Joining us now is John Fishwick, who served as the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia during the Obama administration. John, thanks, as always, for joining me tonight. Alex, thanks for having me on your show. So let's let's talk about this this filing here. The fact that the DOJ thinks the records may shed light on how the materials uh, bearing classification marks were transferred to Mar-a-Lago, how they were stored and who may have accessed them. How do you interpret that? What should we glean from that in terms of the clues the DOJ is looking for in this remaining tranche of documents? Well, Alex, I think these are important clues. You know, last Wednesday, the 11th Circuit gave the uh, FBI access to these hundred classified documents, which are obviously a critical part of the criminal investigation. Why did former President Trump have them? Why were they haphazardly kept? And why were the misrepresentations made about returning them? But now it looks like the the FBI has gone through those documents and they're meticulously figuring out how each document got there, where they were stored, who had access to them. The FBI is probably looking at the videotapes. And as part of that investigation, as part of that meticulous investigation, they want to make sure they're right. They want to make sure they get this done the correct way. They're running down all the documents to see how they were all handled together. And they're meticulously asking to see these other documents now so that they can move forward as expeditiously as possible. But I take from this that they are moving swiftly uh, and doing everything they can to run down all of these classified documents 
And by way of doing that, they want to look at the unclassified documents as well, because they will provide clues to them and ultimately clues to a jury if criminal charges are brought. Do you think that also, I mean, just wanting to get their hands on the 11,000 documents may fold into a potential investigation for obstruction? Because that seems kind of like, in the words of one of our legal analysts, the sleeper sort of story here is that even if you set aside the classification bit, the obstruction charge could stick with the 11,000 documents. Yeah, the obstruction could, could stick on any of the documents. And obviously, yeah. apparently, folks within Trump's orbit have, you know, potentially made misrepresentations about those. And did those misrepresentations come from him? Did he tell his lawyers or other folks in his orbit certain things about the documents that weren't true? Will those witnesses say that? And will the videotapes show so clues about that, as well as looking at the other documents, the other government documents, will they provide clues? And so they're looking at it from all angles. But I take it from this. I know Judge Cannon is sometimes going to be an impediment, but they're they're aware of that and they're trying to move as expeditiously as possible to get to the bottom of this. Well, so they let's talk about that timeline in terms of moving as expeditiously as possible. The DOJ effectively wants to submit its brief before the midterm elections on October 14th. Do you think there's a likelihood that that will happen? Well, I, I would imagine the Court of Appeals will kind of split the baby on this, that, that they're asking for an expedited appeal uh, schedule. They'll probably give them a little more expedited. You know, I, I don't think the midterms enters into this that much. I know there's that you can't do anything within 60 days. I mean, my advice to the DOJ is move forward. Uh, move forward with as much transparency as possible. These briefs are great. They give the American public a view as to what they're doing, what they're looking at. I think the public is starting to understand the case. So I I wouldn't worry about the midterms. I'd move forward with full steam ahead uh, with as much transparency as possible. So we're talking about the DOJ's case, and I want to turn to Trump's case and specifically Trump's legal team, because we have some reporting from The Washington Post today that suggests the sort of most ostensibly level-headed counsel on Trump's team, Chris Keiss, former Florida Solicitor General, has been sidelined in all this, uh, and that the sort of level-headed voices in the room are being marginalized. I say that because this current filing with the 11th Circuit Court that we're talking about right now mentions Chris Keiss as a liaison from Trump's team, which suggests that maybe he hasn't been as marginalized. I guess I wonder... um, How do you read the tea leaves on all of this in terms of Kaiser's role and more urgently his strategy of taking a more conciliatory approach to the DOJ? Is that gone the way of the dodo bird? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, Alex, for any team, you got to be well organized and everybody's got to be on the same page. And particularly in criminal trial work, you got to be organized and on the same page. And looking at the evidence, I would say that they have not been on the same page and have not been a cohesive team. If you recall, they came in guns blazing. We, we want to attack the search warrant. DOJ can't be trusted. These documents may have been declassified. Evidence may have been planted. And at every turn since then, when they've been asked to kind of put up or shut up on, about that, they have uh, delayed and obfuscated. They have not wanted to answer those questions. So whether the strategy was uh, we want to try to get along more and, and not be as aggressive, Regardless, the strategy has not been consistent. And the challenge there when a team, any team, but certainly a legal team is not consistent and unified while they're disorganized and uncertain of what their strategy is going to be, DOJ and specifically the agents working on this case, when they get freedom from Judge Cannon's rulings, they're aggressively and fairly uh, and objectively looking at these documents and running them down to determine were classified documents improperly held there and were uh, 
misrepresentations made about them. John Fishwick, who served as the former U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia. Thanks, as always, for your time, John. Thanks so much. Still ahead this Friday night, Beto O'Rourke faces off against Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott in the first and only debate in the Texas gubernatorial race. And I sat down with Beto O'Rourke himself at a campaign event in Texas just ahead of that debate. That will be coming up next. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. He signed the most extreme abortion ban in America. No exception for rape, no exception for incest. It begins at conception, and it's taking place in a state that is at the epicenter of a maternal mortality crisis, thanks to Greg Abbott, three times as deadly for black women. I will fight to make sure that every woman makes her own decisions about her own body, her own future, and her own health care. That's what most of us, Republicans and Democrats in this state, believe. Tonight, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott and Democratic candidate Beto O'Rourke are facing off in their first and only debate ahead of the November elections. The race between Abbott and O'Rourke is one of the most high stakes gubernatorial battles this election season. Texas is the second largest state in the country and has in a lot of ways become a lab for right wing experimentation. Under Governor Abbott, who may have his sights set on a 2024 presidential bid, the state has cracked down on voting rights. It passed one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country, banned books in the classroom, and is now investigating the parents of transgender youth. At the same time, the governor has come under fire for his handling of a massive power grid failure across Texas during a winter storm and for his refusal to do anything on gun safety after the horrific shooting in the Uvalde a school shooting that killed 19 children and two teachers. Just before tonight's debate, 35 family members of Vivaldi shooting victims endorsed Beto O'Rourke in the race for governor. Earlier this week, I traveled to the state capitol and sat down with Beto O'Rourke at an organizing rally where he talked about what he believes is his path to victory this November. Hey, Austin, how are we doing? I feel really good. We have more than 92,000 volunteers now, and we're going to try to knock on over 5 million doors over the course of these next 45 days. It's the largest organizing effort in America right now, probably one of the largest in in U.S. history. And it's happening in Texas because uh, not the candidate, not the political party, but this moment, total abortion ban. Nearly 18 weeks since those 19 kids and 
two teachers were taken from us in Uvalde. The governor hasn't done a thing. The grid has collapsed and still isn't fixed. And you have the single greatest attack on voting rights and democracy right here in Texas. But these folks, they're not taking it. They're standing up to be counted. They're going to fight back. And together, we're going to win. Why Why are the polls even as close as they are? I mean, there are a lot of people who say Greg Abbott's going to win this. How can that possibly be true after you list a... a a litany of, of things that should have Texas voters from both parties furious, irate, ready to kick Abbott out of office. What's happening in Texas that keeps people supporting Greg Abbott? In terms of this polling, you know, I think Texas is most accurately described not as a red state, but as a non-voting state. Seven million eligible voters didn't cast a ballot in, in 2020. It is so suppressed and intimidated. These organizers and volunteers, they're the answer to that. They're going to knock on the doors of those targeted for suppression and actually make them the margin of victory on election night. That's how we overcome the status quo and the attack on democracy that we see here in Texas. Why do you think Abbott is, is sanctioning a total ban on abortion? I mean, he's a political animal, and it does not take a rocket scientist to look at how badly that issue is playing out for Republicans across the country. Why do he do it? Why does he support this? Why is the Republican Party where it is in Texas, where the polling is really clear about what Texans want and its choice? You know, who, who knows about his motives? My best guess is he began last year, the legislative session, where he signed that abortion bill into law, assuming that not only would he win his reelection, but he had a chance to get the poll position in the Republican presidential primary for 2024 against Ron DeSantis. So. For him, probably in his calculation, there was no cost to running to the right and the most extreme edge of just about everyone else. Do you feel like there's an influx of voters who haven't voted before because of what the Supreme Court did, because of what is now status the status of reproductive choice in the state of Texas? The reason that more than 300 people came out tonight on a Saturday in Austin to sign up to do really hard work tomorrow the reason that we'll be in a rural community like Hunt County and 800 people will come out in the middle of the day to gather. The reason that we're seeing record energy across Texas is definitely not because of me or my party. It has to do not only with the Dobbs decision, but Greg Abbott signing the most extreme abortion ban in the United States of America into law right here. And not only is it a ban that begins at conception without exception for rape or incest, but it's happening in a state that leads the country in a maternal mortality crisis. You have been name checking uh, Governor Abbott your opponent in a way that you didn't name check Senator Cruz in 2018. Yeah, that's right. Explain that strategy to me. Explain that change. You know, in, in 2018, I wrongly assumed everyone had formed their opinion on Ted Cruz and there was very little I could add to that. You loved him or you hated him. What I didn't realize or think about is there are a lot of people working $7.25 an hour jobs in Texas, which is still the minimum wage, raising their kids, taking care of their folks, just living life who are not plugged in and didn't realize or understand the danger of Ted Cruz representing them in the U.S. Senate. I'm not making that mistake with Abbott. I mean, the lights went out in Texas because of Greg Abbott. Our utility bills have gone up because of Greg Abbott. Highest property tax increase that we've probably ever seen in the state, that is Greg Abbott. The single greatest driver of inflation in Texas, Greg Abbott. Gun violence in our schools, Greg Abbott. So you name a problem. This guy's been in office for eight years. He owns it. I'm going to make sure that every Texas voter, Democrat, independent, Republican alike, know that and understand that they have a choice and an alternative and a better path forward in November. Immigration. 
The national news is talking about what Governor DeSantis and Governor Abbott have been doing together in tandem, shipping migrants, asylum seekers to points north, in many cases not being truthful with them about where they're going and what awaits them. Is that galvanizing Texas voters? Busing is something that is happening here in the state. This is a different kind of busing. Does it strike the ire of Texas voters in the same way that it does other voters in the rest of the country? All of us to a person in this state are so deeply frustrated at how broken our immigration system is. And the president and Congress, who have the power to do something, must get that done because for as long as they don't, this gets used as political theater for demagogues like Greg Abbott, who are willing to bust people, who are willing to build uh, a mile and a half of border wall, who are willing to speak in the language of invasion, of defending ourselves, of taking matters into our own hands, all things that the governor has said. Do you think Biden is leading adequately on immigration? No. <laughs> There's a lot that he's doing well and a lot that I am very grateful for. Um, but when we have the power, as, as he does now, as Democratic and Republican presidents alike have had, and don't use it to fix something that is so badly broken, where we're missing the opportunity to satisfy the demands of our economy here in Texas and also to live up to our values as Americans. When we think about 52 migrants dying in the back of an 18-wheeler or being swept away to drown in the Rio Grande River or the Border Patrol agents on whose backs we place this broken immigration system and somehow expect them alone to carry this or to fix this, then it's on all of them. In fact, Ronald Reagan was the last United States president to work on and be able to reform our immigration system. It has literally been that long. And sometimes the cynic in me thinks that both parties uh, love to have this as an unsolved issue so that it's something that they can campaign on. Your message these days is equal parts hope and fear, right? Americans look around and they're like, the walls are closing in. Freedoms that I had taken for granted for the last 50 years since our parents were young seem to be encroached upon or on the line, whether it's book bans, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's women's reproductive choice, whether it's voting rights, whether it's the sanctity of our democracy. How do you convince people that things can change when one party seems so inextricably dug in to the darkness, honestly, to a very, very dark dystopian path for the country? And that that's the party you got to work with to get anything done. Yeah. I I'm as optimistic as I've ever been, and I think it has a lot to do with traveling this state constantly and seeing so many good people, not limited to Democrats. I meet a lot of good Republicans, a lot of good independents, a lot of folks who've never voted before, but want to do the right thing right now at this defining moment of truth. They're not going to allow this total abortion ban to define us or these stunts with immigrants at the border to define us or the cruelty, the corruption, the chaos that we see in Texas right now to define us. They know that may define Greg Abbott and those currently in power, but they know that we, the people of Texas, are much better and bigger than all that. So the way in which people are showing up and standing up to be counted, to do the tough work of knocking on doors and meeting voters where they are, gives me all the faith in the world that we're going to overcome this and we're going to win this thing on November 8th. We're going to win this thing on November 8th. Early voting in Texas begins on October 24th. Up next, Vladimir Putin makes his illegal annexation of parts of Ukraine official with an over-the-top celebration while saving a few choice words for the U.S. and the West. And later... 
a historic day at the Supreme Court as Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson was formally sworn in. Stay with us. Earlier today, Russian President Vladimir Putin walked through massive and opulent gold doors inside the Kremlin Palace to mark one of the most brazen acts of war that he started in Ukraine. He did so, of course, illegally and under the guise of a sham referendum, annexing four regions of Ukraine, which amount to roughly 15 percent of the country. And Putin made sure to make a spectacle of this blatantly illegal land grab, calling it the will of, quote, millions of people. In what is the biggest annexation since World War II, Putin gave an antagonistic 37-minute-long speech marking the occasion. He referred to so-called Western elites as the enemy and criticized the United States for, quote, Satanism. Putin decried the West while simultaneously celebrating the annexation, saying, quote, not only do Western elites deny national, national sovereignty and international law, their hegemony has, pronounced, has a pronounced character of totalitarianism, despotism, and apartheid. To show a united front among the Russian people, the Kremlin held a massive patriotic, patriotic rally of sorts in Moscow's Red Square. Now, this sort of show of national unity is important for Putin because nearly 200,000 Russians have fled the country to avoid his partial draft. In an effort to distract from that, Putin stood under a giant banner that read not ironically, together forever. The crowd waved Russian flags and sang the country's national anthem. The over-the-top pep rally here, if you will, to celebrate annexation of land that is not his is the latest sign of Putin's desperation, seven months into a war that he's showing no signs of winning. Contrast the celebration in Moscow with what appears to be an aggressive Ukrainian counteroffensive in the key region of Donetsk, one that's resulted in Ukrainian troops catch, capturing two villages very close to a key Russian hub in the region and closing in on Russian troops. As a result of Putin's overt acts today, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky officially submitted an accelerated application for Ukraine to join NATO. Back in the U.S., the Biden administration today announced new sanctions targeting top Russian officials and lawmakers and the country's defense and technology industries. President Biden denounced the annexation and said that the U.S. and its allies will not be intimidated by Putin and that Putin's actions show that he is, quote, struggling. Also today, Congress approved a stopgap bill to avert a government shutdown. That bill includes an additional $12.3 billion in aid to Ukraine, which includes $35 million directed towards nuclear safety to avoid a nuclear disaster in the country. Nuclear disaster is a real and growing concern here, with Putin today threatening to defend the newly annexed territories with, quote, all the forces and means at our disposal. We will be right back. have a seat at the table now and I'm ready to work. That was Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson today, just hours after her investiture ceremony, where she was formally inducted to the nation's highest court. Justice Jackson was officially sworn in as a Supreme Court justice back in June, becoming the first black woman to serve on the court. In attendance today were Justice Jackson's family, her eight new colleagues, and notable guests, including President Biden and Vice President Harris. Now, cameras are not allowed inside the court, but thanks to those who were there, we do know some of the details about how the ceremony unfolded. Jackson sat in a chair that previously belonged to the longest-serving former Chief Justice John Marshall. 
Attorney General Merrick Garland was there in an official capacity, dressed in a traditional morning coat. And Chief Justice John Roberts administered the judicial oath. Then Jackson took her seat at the far right of the bench. That's the seat that is reserved for the newest associate justice of the court. Speaking at the Library of Congress after the ceremony, Jackson acknowledged her groundbreaking ascent to the high court. People from all walks of life approach me. They are calling on the ancestors, hearkening back to history and claiming their stake at last. They're saying to me, in essence, you go, you go, girl. (laughs) Justice Jackson is now part of a three-member liberal minority on a court that is dominated by six conservative justices. In the new term, which begins on Monday, the court is expected to hear oral arguments and issue rulings on crucial matters like voting rights, LGBTQ rights, and affirmative action. And with Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson now on the bench, Monday also marks the first day of a Supreme Court that looks a little more like the rest of America. That does it for us tonight. Rachel will be here on Monday, and I will see you Tuesday. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.